In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I do the book of the week from this past week, let me announce the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show. It is Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock. Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. Um, Another judging the book by the cover, or I should say choosing the book. I hear my friend Sina in my head right now. Uh, Choosing the book just because it seemed interesting, the title, and from what I saw, uh, could be an interesting one looking at psychological profiling related to narcissism narcissism and dictatorship. Uh, A lot of people interested in that. Not that it's something new that to have dictators, but in some ways there's some renewed interest in that topic. So I'll talk about this book by Dr. Dean A. Haycock, Tyrannical Minds, on next Monday's show. The book of the week that I'll talk about tonight is Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry by Randolph M. Ness. Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. And anyone who listens to this show a lot will know that just that title alone was one that I agree with or would be interested in because I always say that what we consider bad feelings, the ones that don't feel good are not bad or things we should just get rid of without trying to look more deeply at what's going on. And so oftentimes there are good reasons for our bad feelings. And this book looking at um, mental pain, men- mental suffering, mental illness from an evolutionary perspective it was quite interesting and I was very excited to hear what Dr. Ness had to say and uh, there's a lot of great insights in the book about using evolutionary perspectives and mindset in looking at mental illness and it doesn't mean that it changes everything we view but it does give a new perspective and I actually liked at the end of the book when he talked about evolutionary psychiatry not as an island but as a bridge meaning that it's not going to be this standalone thing that is going to try to explain everything but that it should be one source or one perspective along with others Uh, so it should serve as a bridge rather than uh, something that's seen as a solution and this is something you see in a lot of um, theories especially in the field of psychology that They try to sometimes explain everything using one theory or one thing that's the most important or one explanation for so many things, when really human behavior, human psychology, uh, mental health and mental illness are very complex and complicated things. And so we're not going to explain them using one theory or one explanation or one way of approaching things, but it's important to uh, have a combination 
of uh, different types of perspectives. And definitely for me, the evolutionary perspective has to always be a part of everything we study. Um, a few weeks ago, I talked about The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, which was looking at evolutionary psychology here. Um, the author is a psychiatrist, and he's talking about mental illness. And so they call it evolutionary psychiatry, but really it's the same thing. Um, uh, to me, it's the same thing, essentially. And so getting an idea of what he means by an evolutionary perspective is that we have to view everything we experience and try to make sense of it in terms of evolution. So if we experience something, depression, anxiety, even mania, we want to try to understand how can we explain this from an evolutionary perspective. Now, this doesn't mean, as he says many people do, that we make the mistake of viewing diseases as an adaptation, meaning that because we're thinking an evolutionary framework, we're going to assume that even something like depression or schizophrenia has to have an adaptive value. Now, it could, but we don't want to assume that it has to have an adaptive value, that schizophrenia has to be beneficial if we have it, because now we're using a um, evolutionary perspective. So we don't want to view diseases as adaptation. But as he mentions, another thing that is commonly done in psychiatry is that we view symptoms as diseases. And this itself is a problem. So what that means is that he talks about how in the rest of medicine, if we see cough or pain um, in an individual, we don't think of them as the disease. But we understand that they are symptoms that can be understood as coming from some underlying disease, which is important. However, he says in psychiatry, we look at depression or anxiety and we think that that's the problem, not recognizing if there's something else going on. For example, if some life event has triggered the anxiety or the depression, or if there's something else going on in the system that's causing that. Because things like fever or cough, although they are annoying to experience, most of the time, there's good reason for them. When you are coughing, your body's trying to get rid of something in the body, for example, or if you have a fever, it could be a way of uh, fighting bacteria or fighting infection. So it's not that those bad um, physical feelings have no good reason, and that's the title of this book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. Similarly, what we feel as negative emotions are not just bad things. Negative feelings are not all bad, which is something I emphasize often on this show, because they're also telling us something. And if you're the psychiatrist or psychologist, that can be part of what you are doing. But as individuals, we can do this too. Try to understand what is my sadness telling me? If I'm feeling down, why might that be? Because that could be information, just like if you're coughing, it could be that you're fighting an, an infection or have something that your body's trying to get out. Or if you have a fever, you could have some virus or bacterial infection that's causing the virus, and that could be telling you something rather than just ignoring it. Now, this is where things can get a little tricky because we want to make sure we listen to our feelings, something I talk about a lot, being in touch with your feelings, listening to them. But just because we listen to them doesn't mean that we'll necessarily act on them every time or that we have to listen to them as if they're telling us some fundamental truth or something that is very important. Because our emotions are there not just to make us always feel good or what might seem like is in our best interest short term. 
they can sometimes be signaling danger when no danger is there, for example. So he uses um, an analogy of a smoke detector or the smoke detector principle. We all have smoke detectors in our houses and it's there to keep us safe in case of a fire, especially if you're asleep and there's a fire, it'll wake you up to get you out or to put out the fire and do whatever you need to do to stay safe and keep your family and even your possessions safe. However, we know that oftentimes it goes off when it doesn't need to. You're making toast and a little bit of, it burns, a little bit of smoke gets there and it goes off and it's annoying and it's loud and you try to wave, fan away the smoke or do something and you deal with that. But we deal with having these nuisances because we know that it's worth it in the case where we really do need it. And so our feelings, something like anxiety, can be the same way. It's important to have anxiety, or for example, even our fight or flight response. It's good to have that because in case when you really do need it, it's important that you can immediately react and respond in a way that will keep you safe. But we know that a lot of times when we get really afraid, we get startled, something happens, nothing is going on. We're actually quite safe and fine, maybe someone sneezed in the other room or a door slammed or something else is going on that isn't important. And so we feel a response of fear when really nothing needs to happen. We don't need to do anything, but still it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective for us to have this reaction because we deal with the nuisances of some anxiety or some responses that aren't necessary. But in the case where we really do need it, it could save our life. So it makes sense that our ancestors who had these types of responses survived, and that's why we continue to have those types of responses today. Um, another way of looking at mental illness that I think makes sense is to recognize that most me mental illnesses are an exaggeration or a dysregulation of something that is quite healthy or normal that we need. For example, just going back to what I said about anxiety, having no anxiety is a problem. And our ancestors that didn't worry or plan ahead at all, um, maybe looked very carefree and imagining kind of what we think of as hippies who are not worried about anything. That's definitely an exaggeration and a generalization, but that type of mindset, they wouldn't survive because they wouldn't be prepared in different ways, or they wouldn't have, for example, fears of things that they need to be afraid of. And so when we talk about anxiety as a problem, we don't mean having any anxiety. We mean when people have what could feel like too much anxiety, where it's actually paralyzing them, or they have anxiety or fear of things they shouldn't be afraid of. That's when it is a problem. So sometimes people even come to therapy and they said, I want to get rid of my anxiety. And I understand what they mean is really the way that the anxiety is interfering with their life. But we can't get rid of anxiety, just like we can't get rid of your pain receptors. We can get rid of some pain somewhere, but we can't get rid of pain in general. And that would actually be a bad thing. People who don't feel pain and some people don't on the surface, that can sound really nice, but most of them don't live to have a very long age because they don't feel what's going on in their body and they could be damaging tissue or damaging themselves in ways they don't recognize because they don't feel that pain which is why, again, there's good reasons for bad feelings. It makes sense for us not to feel good sometimes because that gives us some information. And he made an interesting point uh, to me about how we tend to think of, as I just mentioned, anxiety and too much of it as being bad, but we rarely think of there being disorders of too little anxiety. People who aren't 
let's say, afraid of things, which there could be people like that. They, let's say, um, take risks they shouldn't take, but they don't think of the consequences because they don't have enough anxiety to push them away. Or the other thing he talks about is people who might have too much of a good feeling which also seems paradoxical because we think that's good. But if you are so happy all the time that you don't recognize that some things are going poorly, that can actually be harmful for you as well. So it's not good to just have less of bad feelings and more of good feelings overall. We shouldn't just think of that as something um, that's always good. There actually can be issues with having too little of bad feelings and too much of good feelings, something that we might not think about. Um, as I mentioned about listening to the feelings, but we don't have to, to actually listen to what they say. Um, it reminds me of when I went bungee jumping in Costa Rica, and I told myself before I went that I, I knew I would be scared because you're standing on a platform looking down, I think, a few hundred feet with nothing to support you but these uh, cables attached to your legs. Um, and I knew I'd be afraid, and when I got up there, I might not want to jump which makes sense. And I even told myself, okay, you're, you're not going to want to jump. You're going to be afraid to jump, but you have to trust that you're going to be okay and jump. And so when I was up there, um, I of course felt afraid and I, everything in my body and my mind felt like was telling me don't jump because I'm looking at this cliff and it makes sense. And in my brain, that seems like certain death. Uh, our brains were not evolved to think about bungees and things of this sort. So I had to just jump anyway. So I, I heard my feeling, which was telling me don't jump, but I knew that that feeling was not aware of all the information, which was that I was actually going to be okay if I did jump. And I jumped and it was a pretty interesting experience to say the least one I'm glad I had, but I had to override my feelings or not listen to what they were telling me to make sure that I was okay. Um, throughout the book, he also talks about things like how we have pain in relationships and there's a lot of ways to look at that but um, we do have pain in relationships for example when they end or if we're hurt by someone in a relationship and it makes sense to me that that's the price we pay to be in relationships not just as in we should pay a price because they're worth it but it makes sense that if something makes you feel good and is good for you if you lose it you're going to feel pain to me, that does make a lot of sense. Relationships are important for us. So when we lose them, it makes sense that we are going to be hurt. We're not going to feel good. And the book was filled with lots of good information, but I wanted to conclude on one point about self-deception, which is really interesting. Because we think we, we always are talking about knowing ourselves better. But we might ask, why might we not be able to know ourselves? And a lot of evolutionary psychologists and theorists have talked about how we at times have to trick others in order to be able to get what we want or maybe get what we need in a way that maybe doesn't fulfill their needs in the same way. And because of this, we have to sometimes deceive them. Now, of course, this means that others are going to try to catch our deception we're always looking out for that and so some argue that this means that it's good if we can even deceive ourselves so even if i don't realize i'm acting selfishly but i make it seem like it's selfless and even i'm not aware of it and so this is an argument for the unconscious and he talks a lot about the unconscious uh, throughout the book and how it can make sense for us sometimes to not know why we're doing what we are doing and lots of studies have shown that the unconscious is 
something very real. I think sometimes people, they hear about Freud and some of his theories, and if it sounds too outlandish to them, it makes them want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and think, well, there's no such thing as the unconscious, and people are exaggerating it, but very clearly we do have an unconscious, and it can make sense from an evolutionary perspective that sometimes not knowing why we're doing what we're doing can actually be good, the best thing for our genes or in our best interests genetically to pass on our genes and in our fitness in that way. So this concept to me is very interesting and um, one that I invite you to look more into yourselves and I'll probably talk more about it on the show, but that it can be beneficial to us to at times deceive ourselves even that can be beneficial. So the whole uh, concept that this book covers looking at evolutionary psychiatry is that when we try to understand mental illness, if we have an evolutionary perspective, it can give us lots of insights. For example, recognizing that the environment we live in now is not the environment that our brains evolved in, and that leads to lots of mismatches. One very easy one to look at is our diets. Before we lived in uh, environments where it was not easy to find fatty foods or sweet foods or foods that were high in salt. And so it made sense that when we came across them, for us to have a taste that would enjoy those foods and want to eat more and more of them. Of course, now we can easily get access to any of those foods without any effort uh, all the time. And this contributes to things like an obesity epidemic, where we are at a mismatch with the world we live in with the brains that we have. They evolved in a different environment. And so having this awareness of the evolutionary perspective can be very beneficial in having a better understanding. And to me, it's something that I try to take with me when I'm trying to understand anything. And even in working with my clients, and he talks about in this book of having that in the background, an awareness or understanding of how these things make sense, how being sad can even make sense or being slightly depressed can have some benefits to slow down and think about things? Is is it some way that it actually can be beneficial to a degree? Again, I don't want to view the disease as an adaptation, but it's possible that we can at times benefit from slowing down. And so a low mood can make sense even. It might not feel good, but it could be good for you long term in a way. So uh, this book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Dr. Randolph Ness, talks all about evolutionary psychiatry, and I highly recommend you check that out. And again, the book for this week is Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. All right, going into the first commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hambra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you very much for your show. Uh, I have two questions. Okay. Uh, I wonder if uh, attention to details is a nature thing or nurture thing or if we could do anything for that. Okay. Um, so to begin with, you know, there's always this, we call it a debate between nature and nurture. And oftentimes it was seen as a black and white thing of, is it nature or is it nurture? And really with almost anything, we see that it's always going to be some of both. So we're not looking at, is it one or the other? Uh, it's always going to be at some level a blend. And so you're talking about attention to detail. Now, I think I'm sure there's some 
genetic component to it. And I'm sure even on top of that, as people develop, some people, because of their environment and things that happen, will be more uh, paying attention to detail. But then within that, people do have a range of becoming better in any characteristic. And I would say this would be the same when it comes to attention to detail. There's some things that we can also say get in the way of attention to detail. One of those would be anxiety. So if we're having high anxiety, we're going to have a harder time paying attention to certain details. Or uh, if we're anxious, what a lot of times happens is we get hyper-focused on some things and we won't pay attention to other things. So we might be very detail-oriented to something, but we might miss the bigger picture. Before I actually get share some more thoughts, I'm curious to know for yourself, is it something that you're dealing with that you feel you have a hard time paying attention to details? Uh, yes. Okay, so tell me, how does that show up for you? What When you say you, you, you're you not having attention to detail, and of course you being aware of it means that somehow it's either you're paying some price or someone is pointing it out to you, how is it that you know that you don't pay attention to details? Uh, so I can address it in two different ways. One way is that, uh, for example, uh, for example, I'm talking while I'm doing something. For example, solving a math problem while I'm, while I'm talking. I make a mistake. I can't do both. Or I can't type while I'm talking. I can either t- talk or type. That's, so th- that's not... I'm not multitasking. Okay, that's a... Other... Well, let me, t- let me share that first one I, before you get to the second one. You know, multitasking is kind of this... First of all, it's a misnomer, meaning that, you know, it's not really the name of multitasking. You're not doing more than one thing at a time. What we're doing is we're quickly switching our attention between things. And what we tend to find is that when people multitask, they actually are much less efficient than if they did one thing at a time, finish that, and then moved on to the next thing. So it's often seen as a strength uh, as the, of the modern era that you have to multitask and it's good to multitask, but really it's not a, for almost everyone, there's some people, very few that can do that beneficially, but for most people, it's making them less efficient than more efficient. So if you're telling me you're not able to type and do something else at the same time or solve a math problem and talk at the same time, I don't see that as a deficiency in attention to detail. I think that it makes sense that actually you focus on one thing at a time, um, which for some people can be hard. And I was going to mention in general, when it comes to something like attention to detail meditation, so you are more mindful, more present in the moment, because then you'll take in more, because of course we have to pay attention to the details to take them in. Uh, But you might want to reconsider what you're thinking about multitasking as a good thing. Because for most people, for most things we're talking about, it's actually not helpful and does get in the way. Uh, and actually, I brought this up with my therapist, and she said that multitasking is a lie. But all companies say we want someone to <laughs> be multitasking. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's a lot of research is saying that that multitasking in a way is a lie in the sense that people thought of it as this good thing if you're 
emailing your colleague while you're also taking a phone call, while you're also this, while you're also that. First of all, you're going to make many more mistakes when you do that. As I mentioned before, because the time it takes to switch your attention back and forth, because really you're not doing more than one thing at a time, you think you are, but anything that takes any amount of attention, you won't be able to do more than one thing. So you're actually being less efficient. Now, sometimes when people say multitasking, what they might mean is that not that literally at the same 10 minutes you're going to be doing three different things simultaneously, but they mean that you can manage, for example, working on several projects at the same during the same time period. So during a week, you might have many different projects that you might devote 30 minutes only to one and then the next 45 minutes to another one. That can make sense, and a company might want someone who can do that as far as balance different projects. But this idea of doing multiple things at the same time and how this is somehow a sign of strength, it seems to be something that we strive towards, but actually are striving towards something that's not healthy and good. And so thinking that it's good to multitask is not the case. And so I, I agree with, I didn't hear who you said said that, but I, to me, it is more of a lie than anything that we should be multitasking. Okay, good. Uh, the other aspects of, a lack of attention to details, for example, if there is a spreadsheet in front of me, I tend to miss and make some um, mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. There's another side of it. And the other, for example, if I go to some places, I wouldn't uh, see the, let's say, wall decors. Mm -hmm. Others talk about, oh, did you see that picture or did you see that? Mm -hmm. I don't know, that balls or something, but I usually don't see them or don't remember or yeah. don't notice. Now there's, you know, there's one smaller piece, which is that things that we're not interested in, we don't pay as much attention to. So there could be that, which in general, maybe you don't care about certain things that other people do. But the bigger point I think that you might be making, and I think is important to comment on, is going back to what I said about being mindful. So the less in the moment we are, the less we're taking in our surroundings. And so when people become more mindful, they'll sometimes say, you know, I went for a walk on my street and I noticed so many things that I never saw on the street that I live in and drive, you know, by every single day, but then we are not paying attention to it. So that's something I would ask you to think about doing is to meditate more and to focus on becoming more mindful, which is an easy thing to say, but harder to do because what could be happening is that you're not very, uh, if you're more in your head thinking about things from the past or worrying about the future, then when you're sitting in the restaurant, you're not taking everything in around you, like the walls and the decorations and whatever else, or even the food that you're eating. So that's something to think about. Now, I mentioned before anxiety. Do you, is anxiety something that you've had an issue with before, or do you have high anxiety? Okay. It could be. It, it Like I said, oftentimes people who are anxious, for example, people will say, I have a very bad time with names. I don't remember names. But usually what's going on is there's some social anxiety that's taking place of them paying attention to the names. So when they're meeting people, they're shaking hands and saying their name and going through the motions. But because of the anxiety, they're not actually focusing and hearing the names the first time. And so there's sometimes some tricks you can do, like, for example, repeating the person's name. So they say, hi, my name is Michael. You say, oh, hi, Michael. And you say it out loud. Or if it's a unique name, you even spell it or ask them to spell it for you. 
but repeating it and and spelling it will make sure that you actually pay attention to it the first time. So for a lot of people, it's not that they're actually bad with names, but actually that because of some social anxiety or some general anxiety, they're not paying attention when they're meeting people, so they're not taking it in. So when you say you don't pay attention to the details or you're not remembering things in the restaurant or noticing things, what likely is happening is that you're not being as present and in the moment to actually take in the information and the things around you. Uh, thank you very much for sure. bringing the name issue. Apart from the name, I don't even remember faces. So hmm. it puts me in an embarrassing situation many times that I don't remember faces that I've seen a couple of times. That's interesting because sometimes people will say, I, I've heard even psychologists say no one is bad with faces, but I don't think it's that no one is. Um, it could again be that there is a an anxiety there or just that you're not as interested in people. Most people tend to be interested in people, but you're maybe not as interested. And so you're not paying as much attention to them or people in general. So you don't take in that, that information, but that tends to be rare that people don't at all remember a face. Names are more common that we forget. Um, but yeah, names... for me both. Okay. Uh, so in general, in social situations, do you feel comfortable I can't say I'm very comfortable, but okay. uh, I'm more or less comfortable. Okay. Uh, it's not like something very scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there might not be a social anxiety there. It could be uh, not that much interest. You know, Again, we don't pay attention to things we're not that interested in. As I mentioned before, socially, we tend to be interested in people because we're social animals that need social interactions and relationships are very important to us, but maybe there isn't as much of an interest. But I think, as I mentioned before, the when you said you sometimes even in a spreadsheet will miss things, that tends to be from some kind of lack of focus or ability to concentrate, which could come from a lot of things, but meditation can be helpful for lots of things, including that. So I would think about adding that if you don't already meditate to add that to your daily routine. Yes, I uh, subscribe in a, a meditation app by Sam Harris, and I started it. Good. Okay. Well, hopefully that you'll find that that it'll be helpful. Meditation is is like physical exercise, where uh, usually you can get some results fairly quickly, but it does take some time. You're you're training the body, or you're training the brain in a way that does take some time, but the effects can be very meaningful, uh, both in how you concentrate and think, but other feeling just more calm. And as I mentioned before about being more in the moment, it can contribute to that as well, which might be something you're experiencing. I see. So um, to get a recap, so basically uh, you would say uh, meditation is the remedy for... I th- yeah, for- I think it could be very helpful. And then the other part I think was important at the beginning was recognizing that what you might see as a deficiency that you don't multitask might not at all be a deficiency. It might be quite okay. And also either way to recognize, yes, with the meditation and things, your concentration and focus might get better. But if there's some things that you don't do well at the same time, I think in general, it's not good to do two things that are at all important at the same time, um, but that you don't have to do them at the same time. And that that's perfectly okay. Uh, one thing I wonder if it is related to this, uh, when I see a movie mm-hmm. or when I read a page, I become uh, very impatient that I want to just speak and move 
mm-hmm. or more faster? Is uh-huh. it related to this or? I mean, it, it can be that that's ability or feeling comfortable sustaining your attention and even sometimes being bored can be a very needed thing at times. And so we have to be willing to do that. I'm sure if you're looking at a spreadsheet, some parts of it might be interesting, but a lot of times it could be boring. And so that makes you lose that focus. And so we can work on building that focus. I don't want to keep saying the word meditation, but it definitely can be helpful for that to help you focus better on things. Um, But we do have to accept being bored sometimes or not being something doesn't have to always excite us. There could be some level of ADHD there as well. Of course, when we're talking about attention, uh, that disorder has attention in the name. So that's also something worth looking at for yourself. If there is any ADHD that you're dealing with that makes it harder for you to focus, because really in a lot of ways, when people have ADHD, it's at the thing they're paying attention to, it's as if it can't sustain their attention. It's not enough for them to stay focused. Interestingly okay. enough, uh, almost yeah, the opposite. Even for, yeah. Go ahead. Even for uh, the, the pleasant activities, like seeing a movie. For example, many people love to play poker or any kind of mm-hmm. card game, but for me, it's torture. Yeah. Well, you said it's interesting that you say even fun things because oftentimes people with ADHD, they can focus for a long time. So I work with families and they say, my child has ADHD and they're having a hard time with their homework, but then they'll go play video games for six hours straight and they don't understand how they can do that. So it could be ADHD, but that makes it seem like it might not be. There does seem to be some kind of an impatience you have with just staying in the moment, which it could be coming, again, from an anxiety that I have to be doing something, I have to be productive and using the time wisely. That's something I see from a lot of people these days that they can be hyper-focused on what they consider efficiency, so they have to keep doing things and, and, and you know being productive in the ways that they see as productive. But oftentimes it leads to them not living their life more fully, being more in the moment, and even valuing relationships, with which a lot of times when you're having a relationship with someone, it's just about talking and sitting and spending time. It might not seem productive in that type of way we tend to think of it, but we have to accept that and be able to at times slow down. That's another thing. A lot of the theme of what you talked about was living in in the cliche way of saying this fast-paced world of where you have to be doing a lot of things and do this and that at the same time and get through this. And even a movie is too boring if it's not making me excited or feel good. But a lot of times living a good life involves slowing down a little bit as well. So there could be something there. Could there be anxiety? Something worth looking at. Um, but sometimes just being able to, uh, as the cliche goes, slow down and just smell the roses and just take your time a little bit might be a good mindset for you to to look at that you can at times just slow down and that's actually okay it's okay to be bored it's okay to not feel good and also there could be something you're avoiding in trying to shift from one thing to the other it's something i see a lot of this is my yeah yeah you actually brought up it seems that i'm also escaping from one thing to another and just escape after escape. Right. Or so, avoid yeah, that's something I see with a lot of people that, and, and today it's so much easier to do that with the phone, for example, that because of the phone, they don't have to ever be just by themselves. And so I'm glad you're starting the meditation process because that involves a lot of being with yourself. But I see a lot of people, 
every moment they're doing something or think they're doing something, again, they think they're being productive, whether it's just going through Instagram for the 50th time, but it's not actually because they're doing something, but to avoid doing nothing, because when they do nothing, they have to sit alone with their feelings and allow themselves to feel what's there, which with at times might be uncomfortable and they might be avoiding that. So that's something I'd also think want you to look at. When I just do nothing, what do I start to feel? Do I feel anxious? Do I start to feel sad or down? And I, I want to avoid that by keeping myself constantly occupied. It, all, all those things could be involved. Yes, um, uh, because exactly those uh, Instagram or mobile app give me, just feed it because uh, whenever you get bored, you switch to another. But yeah. even sitting and watching a movie is like two hours commitment. Isn't and yeah? So again, like you're seeing that word commitment. Even commitment. there's something yeah, you're afraid to give your time away. It's almost like you're you're being stingy with it, but then you don't allow yourself to then have some experiences if you do that. Now I'm looking at the time, and I'm at a commercial break, and I have someone else on hold as well that I wanted to make sure I get to. So if you don't mind, we'll we'll wrap up the conversation. I know you said you had another question. Maybe if you want to call back another time, we can get to that. But I appreciate you calling tonight. Okay, sure. Uh, thank you very much. Sure. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Have a good All right. We've reached our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, good evening, Dr. Dolokwi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Thank you okay? Yes, hear you loud and clear. Thank you. Go ahead. Excellent. Uh, I'm calling about my daughter. She's uh, 20 years old, and she has some issues that I've written down. If you don't mind, I'll just read it with a few issues. Sure. And uh, see if you can help me out with, with her issues, please. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Yes, I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay, okay thank you. Uh, basically, she doesn't look uh, like a happy person, uh, and then she, basically she says that she feels mad or un- angry uh, most of the time. And also, uh, for example, if the mother is eating some food and she makes some noise, it really, really bothers her, irritates her so much. If she hears any any uh, somebody eating with some making some noise, and his. Uh, she doesn't really usually like uh, people. She doesn't hate people, but doesn't like people either. She's worried that people will judge her, she says. And she, she got some mood changes. Often uh, her mood changes as well. And then uh, uh, if things don't go her way, she says that she becomes nervous and irritated. And uh, she's basically an isolating type of a person. She doesn't not easy to make friends or uh, not easy to talk to people, difficult to make decisions about things, about schoolwork or about uh, you know, the, anything that has to make a decision, it's hard for her. Hmm. And uh, she also says that she's thinking too much about everything, you know, it's just uh, uh, too much thinking. And uh, some other things is that she, if she goes out with her friends and stuff, she feels guilty. Uh, when she's having to go out to have fun with friends, she feels guilty about that. I, I don't know why. Hmm. And then in the mornings when she wakes up, she wakes up worried or anxious. Uh, basically, in the morning, she's, she's, uh, she's not a happy person. She wakes up in a very bad mood. 
uh, and also she thinks, you know, that uh, she's under control, you know, uh, even though she, she agrees that we are not controlling her, but she thinks things are basically under some control. Having said all of this, doctor, uh, I was uh, suspecting some kind of an Asperger, Asperger uh, for her. And then uh, we have made two appointments, one to get QEG, to get, uh, uh, that's the, uh, I guess, brain mapping, QEG, and on another one, neurofeedback. I was going to ask you about your uh, your thoughts on this. What, what, what's your intake from all of the things that I said about her? Well, I mean, from what you said, you know, there's not... Um it's hard to make a diagnosis based on that. You've mentioned the word anxiety and worry a lot. So I know you mentioned Asperger's, which people with Asperger's tend to not like change and can have worry, but there seems to be a lot of anxiety. So that's definitely something worth looking at if she's dealing with some high levels of anxiety. Now there's also um, socially that could make it hard for her to make friends or you said she's always worried about people judging her. So it's not that she, it doesn't seem like she doesn't want to have friends. I was going to ask because sometimes we have our own uh, assumptions about what a person should be like. So we think our kids should have lots of friends and be very social and maybe they don't want to be social. But from what you described briefly, it seems like she maybe would like to have more friends or to be around people, but that she gets worried about people judging her or she even feels guilty about having a good time or going out. And, and so it makes it very hard for her to... Uh, to even enjoy enjoy friendships or enjoy anything because either she's not enjoying something and it seems like she doesn't feel good or even when she has a good time, she can turn it into something negative. People with Asperger's tend to have a hard time making friends, but it's more because they have a hard time doing things like reading social cues or understanding the ways that people communicate when it's more abstract. So they have a hard time more in the communication, not verbally because they can express themselves, but I've worked with kids who they can't tell that everyone around them is bored. So they keep talking about the same topic over and over again, and the kids are bored and they want to change the subject, but they're not picking up those cues at all. Do you notice any of that in her, for example, being obsessed with one topic and only talking about that, uh, and then also having a hard time socially as far as picking up cues if people are upset or bored or happy? Does she have any of those issues? The only issue that I think she has is just uh, socially, when she wants to go out make friends, she's probably very quiet, difficult to uh, uh, communicate a lot with them, or, yeah, they, they doesn't read the issues very well. I think the, uh, the uh, communication uh, is very limited. Okay. Uh, so there one could be. I, yes, uh, go ahead. One more, thing that I, one more thing I forgot to mention, that when she's in a class at, in the university, she says often she gets a stomach ache during the class. Hmm. Well, I mean, a stomach ache, it can at times be a physical manifestation of anxiety. So it seems like she's dealing with a lot of anxiety. Does anyone, do either you or your wife have high anxiety? We have, we have yeah, we, um, maybe not so much us, but my, my parents, okay. uh, they have anxiety. It, it, it runs in family, but... Yeah. But uh, she, has, she has other sisters and brothers that, that they didn't really have that kind of an issue. 
she's the only one that I think she deals with so much anxiety. Yeah, well, the thing with when we look at genetic things, first of all, obviously she only shares 50% of the genes with her siblings anyway. And then genes, when we talk about a genetic, um, something having a genetic basis or genetic effect, we don't mean that there's some genes that mean she's going to definitely be anxious, but there's always an interaction between the genes and the environment and lots of different factors at the same time are going to determine whether someone has anxiety or not. So um, I wouldn't say that because she has anxiety and the siblings, her siblings don't have as much that it's not genetically uh, related or also that she just doesn't have anxiety and it's not the main issue. It could be that. I mean, there's a lot of what you're saying that relates to anxiety. Having a hard time making decisions is also related to anxiety at times. Um, it does seem, I can understand your concern for her because you, you described her as not being a happy person and angry most of the time and doesn't feel good about a lot of things. There's a lot of anger, even when he said how irritated she is from her mom's eating. Now, some people are just more sensitive to sounds in general. So there could be some of that, but also at times, if we have an issue with a the person, then we're going to be more irritated by them. So I don't know what her relationship like it, relationship is like with her mother, but uh, that's something you can look at as well. Um, Doctor, why does she why, why does she wake up every morning uh, so uh, unhappy and uh, worried? And why is it that she always looks unhappy and mad uh, or sad or uh, angry? I can't. Often people tell her. Yeah, I can't answer that for you, but I can also tell you in the way that you're asking me. There seems to be some level of you seeing it as almost like a choice, which I'm not saying we don't have any effect on our moods and things because we do. But what I'm concerned about is the way I'm hearing it in your tone is that you're going to judge her for, for example, being so negative. Why are you so negative all the time? You don't need to be so negative. And as I said, it's not that we can't have any effect on these types of things, but in some ways it's as if you told me she wakes up and she's cold. I wouldn't be mad at her if she woke up and she was cold. I mean, there's something going on with her body and maybe there's things we can do to help her, but it's not so much in her control or just a choice that she wakes up and says, you know what? I want to be in a bad mood right now. There could be a lot of things going on and she could be also, there could be a depression that she's also experiencing as well. And anxiety and depression uh, tend to go hand in hand and are very related, but just in the, how you asked me, and I can't give you an answer if this is why, but especially I don't want you to approach it with her from this, why are you this way in a negative way? I might think, why does she have to suffer so much? Why does she have so much pain? I feel bad for her. I have compassion for her, but not why in a, you know what, tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want you to be in a good mood. Just like I wouldn't tell someone, you know what, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you have to feel warm. You can't be cold because it's not. Doctor, yeah. now, uh, well, the, the most important question is about this QEEG or the neurofeedback uh, that, uh, that uh, we have made appointment for. Do you recommend us to do that? Do you well, find the QEEG to find out what's going on as far as the, the brain waves or brain know, mapping? Well, you know, I talked, I didn't get to talk about it in the first segment, but you know, we've done, a, there's a lot of research being done on the brain and it's amazing and I'm so happy they're doing it and they'll continue to do it uh, for years and years to try to unravel human psychology and the human brain and so much more, but we don't know so much. And so I don't know how much a brain scan is going to reveal. If you've already have it scheduled and it's made and you can go in and you guys feel fine paying for it, go right ahead. But I think I, I've, I think it's important to figure out what's going on with your daughter, but oftentimes 
there isn't going to be some clear-cut diagnosis with a very clear-cut treatment that's going to have a clear-cut solution. It could be a little bit messier than that, and I want you to be prepared for that. Um, and so I'm not such a huge... I don't think the brain scans give us as much as we think or we'd hope that it does. And there was hopes that we were going to be able to map the brain and figure out every mental disorder and why it happens, and that would lead to new treatments and cures for things. And we haven't had as much success as we would have liked. doesn't mean we can't, but so far we haven't. So I wouldn't think of as the brain scan as the solution. I think um, I, I think she would benefit from going to therapy and trying to figure out a lot more what's going on. And medication might be at some point indicated as well. It definitely seems like she's dealing with a lot. Uh, but I just want you to be prepared that if you go get that brain scan, it does. it's not the same way as we get a blood test that I know your cholesterol is high or low or you're low in this vitamin. It's not going to be that type of a black and white, uh, you know, information that you're going to receive. So just be ready for how, that. How, how about neurofeedback? Uh, neurofeedback can be helpful, but I don't know exactly what she's dealing with to say that definitely neurofeedback is going to help. You know, she's she's dealing with a lot. And as I said, and, and what I feel in your voice is this feeling of fixing it, which I'm not saying we don't want to help her. But it's very likely what she's dealing with is not going to be something that's just going to fix or change very quickly. So treatment is going to be a process and it's going to take some time and it's going to be about her figuring it out also for herself. It seems like she's struggling. Does she want to get help? Yes, she does. Okay, good. So I would, you know, we're going to help her get that help and the you can get the brain scan and, and the neurofeedback. Like I said, I don't know if it's going to help her or not. I would prefer her talking to a therapist so we can better understand or even a psychiatrist that would really get in depth of trying to understand what's going on. I think there's definitely some anxiety there for sure. Now, is that really the issue? As I was talking about in the book to begin with, sometimes we don't know, is the anxiety the issue or there's something else going on? Um, but I would get her somewhere where she would talk more than just scan her brain and figure her out. And as I said before... I hope we make sure you're not judging her because if she had, you know, some kind of, if she had diabetes, we wouldn't tell her, well, just produce more insulin. You know, it's, it could be the same kind of a thing. So we want to be aware of how much this might be out of her control and not to blame her for it. But it seems that you guys care and are going to get the help. And I'm looking at the time I do have to wrap up. Um, but thanks for your call and best of luck to you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a good night. Good all right, thank you to the callers and the listeners and to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.